0: Hello and welcome to Inside Infrastructure, an inside look at the decisions and decision makers behind Australia's major infrastructure sectors. I'm Ilya Zak from series sponsor PwC Australia, and normally I'm joined for this intro by my co host Adrian Dwyer, CEO of series publisher Infrastructure Partnerships Australia. Not to worry though, it's only the intro being recorded without him. He's still front and centre for our interview today for the first episode of the year with our special guest Amy Brown, Deputy Secretary of the New South Wales Department of Premier and Cabinet. Amy was actually a partner here at PwC and made the huge mistake of hiring me shortly before she began her current role, so I was pretty excited to speak to her for this episode. We recorded the episode last year, so you'll notice we didn't discuss things such as the bushfires that have been raging over the summer. What we did discuss quite a bit though was DPC's critical role as coordinator of service delivery where multiple agencies are involved. And the reason I mention that now is because I think it's a very important perspective, especially given Amy was acting secretary of DPC for much of the summer. So without further ado,
1: here's our chat with Amy Brown. Amy Brown, welcome to Inside Infrastructure.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, Obviously, you're Deputy Secretary of Department of Premier and Cabinet in New South Wales today, but you've had quite a varied career leading up to this role, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your path to the job you're in now.
2: Sure. Uh, So going right back, when I was in high school I wanted to be a professional actress.
1: And Uh, do you feel like you've fulfilled that destiny? I feel like I fulfill
2: (laughs) it every single day. Um, (laughs) But my dad and my mum, I think um, for seeing a future of me being uh, extra on home and away, or working (laughs) in Starbucks full time while I waited for the next job, said that they'd support me in my dream if I went to university first. So I think I fancied myself as Meghan Markle of Suits or the equivalent of that and decided to do a law degree and studied law and social sciences at Macquarie University, fine establishment. Then I got a graduate position at Freehills And spent the next 12 years, funnily enough, uh, in project finance, anything from uh, the sale of Sydney Airport to uh, financing power stations in the Middle East to the suite of PPPs that were going on across the country, particularly in um, uh, schools, hospitals, prisons and social housing. Uh, I spent a bit of time in London and uh, came back with a 112 kilo Irish souvenir called Rory. (laughs) And settled back in Australia where I focused on the PPP side of things and once I had my kids for some reason I wasn't quite satisfied to leave them at home to try and um, craft a watertight indemnity and my indemnities were never going to be watertight anyway so I decided to follow my passions and get a job with New South Wales Government. It was at the time when Mike Baird was the treasurer And Peter Regan was setting up the Infrastructure Finance Unit, IFU,
0: seriously, (laughs) Um, and its
2: twin unit, Strategic Liabilities and Asset Management Unit, SLAMU. So (laughs) New South Wales Treasury was doing great things and it was predominantly to try and get more private finance into the infrastructure sector and work out how we could work in partnership uh, with the private sector to deliver good outcomes for all sorts of infrastructure across the st- across the state, being transport uh, or the more tradi- or the more what's known as social infrastructure sectors. So I focused on um, social infrastructure was my passion. But when you have a kind of ninety billion dollar infrastructure pipeline, everyone has to muck in. So I did help out with things like Northwest Rail Link and the light rail, um, and Northern major' Hospital was one of mine, and restructuring Royal North Shore. So it was a really exciting time. And then I went to PwC to help. Put some momentum behind their social infrastructure practice. But a couple of years later, uh, decided it was time to come home. And with nine months to go before the election, uh, it was a really good time to join back, uh, you know, join the troops back in New South Wales government and get a whole bunch of projects delivered uh, before the election. And yeah, started in Department of Premier and Cabinet as a Deputy Secretary.
0: So that is a pretty uh, a, a pretty varied career, and it sounds like at the start you were, um, it was a law degree mixed with, with uh, social uh, social services. But was the intention always the the infrastructure side, or were you interested in maybe um, some something clo- a little closer to the actual service delivery?
2: Yeah, good question. Um, I, as an aside, I actually, when I was on maternity leave, I set up a fitness business called Fit Mummers, okay. and the slogan was from baby to babe. So <laughs> I have tried my hand at many different
1: <laughs> careers.
2: <come? laughs> um, yeah, it went okay. <laughs> But um, no, it was good fun actually. We had nannies who minded the kids and trainers who.
0: Was who, it before Instagram?
2: It was. Oh yeah, it was.
0: I'm not sure it's possible Instagram. to run a fitness business That's without Instagram. True. Oh,
2: That might have been my problem. That was
0: the, that was the whole.
2: But um, yes, no, I think I, th- I think like a lot of people, I kind of fell into the project finance space. It was basically chosen because when I did my graduate rotations at Free Hills, my favourite partner happened to be a project finance partner. Who was that? Um, John Angus. Okay. Oh, he's project finance and structured finance, but close enough. So. Um, so, did
1: you see when you embarked on law, you saw yourself? Uh, maybe I was going to be Meghan Markle in suits. That, yeah, that kind <laughs> yeah. of you know, in court prosecuting yeah. the case. So yeah. the acting theme is quite consistent. Correct. There,
2: yeah. yeah, correct. I actually really enjoyed that. So I did a lot of kind of mooting, which is like fake court case sort of stuff at uni. And when even when we did our um, practising certificate um, training, the one where you had to kind of get up and defend the little old lady who'd um, been, you know, arrested for shoplifting, I actually really enjoyed that sort of side of it but when you get offered a, a graduate position at you know one of the most successful law firms in australia you're going to take it and see what happens which i think is you know don't say no to opportunities because you never know and the worst thing that can go wrong is that you learn something So when Peter Regan was setting up the Infrastructure Finance Unit, I clearly remember meeting up with him and he was talking about how it was going to be this unit in government with all these, you know, ex-investment bankers and they were going to have to sprint so fast because there was such a big infrastructure, Um, you know, so many projects in procurement and we were going to have to just go at speed. And I said, you know what, Peter, I think you need a lawyer because lawyers look around corners. Um, And you're also going to need someone who has advised the private sector as well as government so that you can kind of, you know, no one's going to check the documents to see if people are trying to game you in the kind of, you know, technicalities of the wording. So I kind of started off in that I'm just a lawyer comfort space even though actually he'd hired me as a director, you know. I was there to be more than a lawyer. But I think when you change careers sometimes you you hang on to the thing you were doing before. So I really got into the, I did the template project deed for New South Wales and loved all of that. And, you know, took the law firms to task on on whether they drafted clause 42.1F correctly. And it was all, and that's great, but it's interesting that now that I'm more senior in government and I can see the whole picture, um, I kind of realised I was a little bit too, I couldn't see the wood for the tree sometimes because you just get so stuck in the detail.
0: Mm. So there's, I mean, you started out with a whole bunch of project finance work. There must have been, and you've, that's where your career has gone since then. Did you take some, was it purely on the job learning or or, um, have you? uh, is that an area that you've studied formally at university after you oh,
2: started? Oh, like in terms of doing project finance? Yeah, yeah. I think um, it's interesting. I don't know if this is too much of an aside, but I speak to my husband who went to university in the UK. He went to Oxford and people at Oxford, they study, they study languages um, or, you know, he did chemistry at Classics mm. or this And then it teaches them how to think and then they start the job and learn how to do the job. Yeah. Right? And so for me... Yeah, I maybe used my law degree a bit and it taught me how to, you know, write a good essay or pass exams. But actually you learn so much more on the job because it's the stuff, it's the EQ and it's how to work with people and how to use your strengths and how to plug your weaknesses and all of that stuff. And I think no matter what the subject matter, it's learning how to be good. At your job that's yeah. something that you can never study
0: when you st- you started at Free Hills, you got exposed to a whole bunch of um major projects particularly at the early stage of private financing infrastructure in mm-hmm. in new south wales and
1: transactions not and, just projects that's right yeah. yeah
0: are there any in particular that you that you worked on that were quite um innovative and interesting for you in terms of the or, way those things were delivered yeah, or
1: formative here? for you
2: yeah. that's a good question um, I think so when I first came back to Australia in 2007 after my stint in London, I worked for Minters and I used to advise consortium a lot bidding for PPPs. Interestingly, New South Wales was in a bit of a hiatus so I had to spend a lot of time in and Queensland and I advised the winning consortium on both the Victorian schools PPP, Vic Schools 1, um, and South East Queensland schools PPP. And I think for me... Uh, it's when I started to get that excitement of you're doing a piece of infrastructure. Sure, you know it's all about you know it was about it being built on time, under budget, and at quality, and what the private sector could bring in terms of uh, a whole of life kind of view of that infrastructure, which is one of the you know benefits of a PPP and then the kind of uh, the way that they do design so that they can design and then roll it out across multiple schools. So there's some efficiencies in that and all of that good stuff. But it suddenly made me realize that government infrastructure was about people. And, you know, I could point at th- those schools and say to my kids, I did that. And in fact, apparently my little boy walks around his school saying, my mommy's getting rid of these demountables. So, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, there's something so kind of purposeful in it. And that's when I started to really gravitate towards social infrastructure. And from then on, it was the, the projects I was fighting to be on was the schools, hospitals, prisons, social housing, and to start to kind of, um, develop innovative models across those sectors. and it worked perfectly because there are a lot of smart people looking at transport, you know, and there are a lot of smart people looking at social infrastructure, but at the same time at that time when New South Wales was first getting its PPP you know legs back, uh, a, a lot of people were talking about transport and it was good for me to really come in and and test what we could be doing in the social infrastructure sense.
1: so you uh, you came back to government. Um, shortly after hiring Ilya here at PwC. Is he the reason that you left the private sector?
2: (laughs) No. I knew you need to hand me a tissue. One of the hardest things about leaving PwC was I just hired Ilya Ilya, and I just hired Boyd Russell, who is such a superstar.
0: Oh, sorry, Ilya is.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And Ilya is also such a superstar. And I felt like my team was finally complete. Right. And then Mama Bear left,
0: Had to go back. and
2: I left mm. you with Big Brother Ben Rook. So, and for a while, and then he followed me as well. But that's right. Um, yeah, I felt I felt a bit like I mean, I've I was left leaving some or- orphanages.
1: It's true. We've,
0: we, not, we, Adrian and I have worked together in the past as well, and he was very encouraging when I <laughs> discovered a new job opportunity. I'll give you a reference. I'll give you a reference. <laughs> so you're not the that first. Was good yeah, <laughs> but uh, <so laughs> when you say to
2: people, "I want to support you in your dream," <laughs> all the way out this
0: door. So, why did you? Why did you decide that uh, coming back to government? What was the? Were there yeah. some some um, some particular things that you wanted to pursue yep. coming back to government?
2: Yeah, I think part of the reason um, I struggled not being in government was because I've been in government before, so I was used to um, having front row tickets to the show, so to speak, where uh, you can see that what you do every day. I really could see it having a direct impact, you know, in some way, shape, or form on the citizens of New South Wales and improving their quality of life. And the fact that um, I got to make decisions or rather uh, make recommendations to our good decision makers. And um, there was such a proximity to what was happening, particularly in infrastructure at the time. And so to then leave that kind of front row. You know seats of the show all the way to the nosebleed uh, seats in the stadia but it might be too early to make a joke about stadia um (laughs) i found it really hard you know and i'd see all these projects come down the pipeline and i might have been involved in the scoping phase of them and yet being a consultant uh, if i didn't win the mandate i didn't even get to play and when i did get to play sometimes i knew that i was writing a report that was probably appendix f of the you know relevant submission and I just – I really struggled being that far away and I wanted to be more hands-on. I wanted to be more hands-on, you know, and not hear about um, being the last to hear that a project had been cancelled or, you know, being brought in at the 11th hour to, to, you know, write up a report about something. I wanted to be there the whole time.
0: So you've come to you, – you went, you went to DPC as uh, I think you were – Deputy Secretary for Economics and Policy.
2: Yeah, it's well. On day three, I changed the name. That's
0: right. So, you're, <laughs> can you well, tell, so us, tell us the, the title today?
2: No, it's changed again. So, I, I first came in and um, I was Deputy Secretary. The group was called Economic Policy. Okay. I changed it to the Commercial and Economic Group, mainly because the acronym was KEG.
0: Um,
2: <laughs> so we had a lot. of I think of we're fun seeing a that. theme
1: here with our yeah. names.
2: Acro- yeah, I love my acronyms. Yeah. Um, so that was predominantly, I inherited these amazing economists. Uh, a good chunk of them are based in Orange and the other portion of the team are based in Sydney. And it's almost hard to know what should be with such a powerful machine. They are phenomenal. So they do uh, some macroeconomic strategy for the state. Mm-hmm. So what should we be focusing as on as a state? to improve productivity and therefore quality of life for all. So they um, have come up with some very clever strategies, including um, the economic development story for our regions Mm -hmm. and right down to specifics as to... uh, functional regional areas and what the, the focus should be in terms of industries to generate the most economic benefit. As a
0: special so, activation precincts program? It's
2: not. It's no, not quite. But um, special activation precincts have grown as a result of that analysis. Right. So Correct.
1: So a danger of picking winners in that? You say this area does this thing and you end up with... <coughs> Uh, Yeah, like picking a winner.
2: Well, it's less about picking winners. What they tend to do is say, well, um, for an area to be, you know, prosperous, it needs an engine. And what is going to be that engine economy that results in um, the most kind of activity flowing from it? So if you think of the, you know, the engine's the front of the train and then the rest of the train is all the support services and jobs and benefit that's going to come as a result of having... The relevant engine so they're making sure that depending on um various endowments of different parts of new south wales what is the right engine to generate the most
1: benefit so what, and then focusing government and on then focusing government on engine. enabling yeah. that
2: yeah, yeah anchor
0: point i guess that that won't move that can enable all the other stuff
2: yeah and even um they're doing a piece for me at the moment and it's um what would greater connectivity mean for different parts of New South Wales. So that's not about a transport solution per se, um, or a certain number of minutes between uh, a particular regional town and Sydney per se. It's about communities and how can being more connected uh, how can connecting people to jobs and education, but to essential services to each other, mm-hmm. what can that do for communities and for the quality of life of individuals within those communities? Yes, we might eventually get to a transport solution around that, but that's not the question. The mm. question is, you know, what, do, what, ben, what economic and quality of life benefit does connectivity bring?
0: So what's your title today? I haven't
2: even finished, about, yeah, that, that's the, one the of the my branches. What,
0: what's the title today?
2: Uh, the title today is Strategy and Delivery. <laughs>
0: We uh, were discussing this earlier and strategy is uh, a catch-all term sometimes. Yeah. What does it entail in your particular branch or division?
2: Yeah, good question. So, I mean, we want – like I said, we want – a better quality of life for all citizens and I'm very deliberate when I say all uh, across New South Wales and we can do that by supporting government to make good decisions and achieve its objectives. So we do that in a couple of ways. One is providing really good advice and one is implementing um, projects, programs, policy, initiatives, things like that. So for me being at the centre of government comes with certain unique selling points, I suppose, where um, we can, we have a bird's eye view and can see all of government. And so rather than standing behind um, a agency and looking over their shoulder while they do their BAU, I would much prefer that we take the issues, and this is in a strategic sense, that are really, really, really complex and involve lots and lots of different parts of government and we bring the right people from around government together and we crash tackle that issue.
0: We actually spoke to Amy twice for this episode. The first was a while back, while a second session was recorded to include the most recent developments in the sector. Here's that second session now. So welcome back. Thank you. (laughs) Good to
2: be back. A lot's happened since we last caught up.
0: It has, there has been a lot.
2: And Oh, no, I was going to say it's nearly
1: Christmas. No, Will make... Yeah, you can. Are we making these kind of monthly now? We'll just do a monthly <laughs> chat and you can just update a, us yeah. on what's happened.
2: Chat in front of a microphone yeah. with a very good almond latte, thank you.
0: Fireside Chats with Amy Brown, that's yeah. the new name of the podcast. <laughs>
2: Gosh, I could probably come up with enough material, given my current role, but anyway.
0: Well, the first... Bit of material that we were hoping you'd discuss with us is um, uh, in relation to an article you recently published on LinkedIn, yep. um, a, a to do with uh, some of your own experience with mental health. Uh, can you talk us through talk us through that article for anyone first of all that hasn't might not have seen it?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so, if anyone wants to read the full article, it's called "Battling Giants and the Positive Side of Mental Illness," I think. Um, and I wrote it during Mental Health Month, which was in October. And the purpose for me writing it, I think, was to do a bit of destigmatization of mental health conditions. So I sort of started off by saying there are various mental health conditions, um, some of them more severe than others, but uh, I have no doubt that someone you know uh, will be affected by one of these conditions and still be a very productive member of society. Uh, I then went on to say that I personally have type 2 bipolar disorder, um, and that leads to uh, periods of highs sometimes extreme highs and it can then be followed by periods of lows and the best way to kind of tackle that in my experience is uh, with a lot of kind of professional support so um, to help manage the more extremes of those moods uh, but also with social capital uh, and a really really good network of people who kind of love and support you so um, I wanted to put that out there partly because I think I'm senior enough in my career now that people would you know uh, rightfully or otherwise see that i've had some success and so we're showing that successful people can have these can things that affect our ability to be 100% 100% of the time because nobody is uh, and that's okay and actually sometimes in our weaknesses there's actually great strength
0: so what's the response been to the to putting that out there in a, in a in a very public Setting.
2: I think the response has been really positive, particularly from people reaching out and saying, hi, I have something similar, or I have something that affects me from time to time. Um, but as I said to my boss, just think of it as if, you know, I suffer from migraines and occasionally need a little bit of time and space to to um, work through it. So... Uh, it's been good i think the flip side of it though is something that i'm starting to move people to and that's what happens when people don't have the social and financial capital to be able to manage these things well and they are entirely reliant not just on the public system but on their own um, ability and agency to be able to use the public system well and actually uh, when people aren't looked after it can lead to quite um difficult circumstances. So I gave the example that um, people who experience psychosis, which is a a mental uh, illness sort of related episode, are five times more likely to end up in prison. Um, And that's particularly acute when it's women and where there's sort of drug use combined in with it. So we really need to make sure that our public system of mental health provision uh, really looks after people and particularly people at their most vulnerable, so people on exit from prison uh, or people who are at risk of homelessness or people who are fleeing domestic violence situations. If they don't have their own social and financial capital to manage it, as I do, what are we doing for them?
1: Um, I, I, we'll come back to the that um, the sort of policy implications and the human implications of a minute. I just want to ask about... Um, <clears throat> your own mental illness and the impact on professionally on two fronts one is um has it guided the professional direction you've taken the the choices you've taken to go into the field that you're in and then once within that field how does it frame the way you think about issues and do you think that's different to how it would have been had you not suffered from mental illness
2: I think. On the side of personal characteristics, I think some of the um, symptoms that come with bipolar disorder have been a source of great strength for me. So it makes you very creative and relentless and, you know, not not being able to stop until a problem is solved. So that's actually a massive advantage career-wise, right? And also really high amount of natural energy and you can, you know when you're starting to go for days without sleeping, you know you're actually in the, in the in the danger zone. But, you know, it does come with that kind of level of um, relentlessness about things. Um, but I it also means that I see, I might, perhaps I see some of the vulnerabilities of society as a bit of a counterfactual. So um, I know that if not well-managed, mental illness can lead you to all sorts of um, dark and scary places and that's kind of not the people's fault um who find themselves there and then when they find themselves there how are we helping them particularly from an early intervention perspective so that they're not kind of slipping off the ledge into a place that's really scary and and um absolutely suboptimal for themselves and their kids and their families and their employment status and all of that stuff so i think it gives me a massive empathy uh for people who um are vulnerable and it also gives me a bit of a sense of responsibility to speak on behalf of people who don't get the opportunity to and
0: it's certainly that that has probably already changed just in the last few years because the stigma associated with um revealing that you have that you do suffer from some kind of mental illness seems to have changed just recently i think i can remember that it would have been almost impossible for someone in your position yeah. just a few years ago to 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 write the article that you did yep. um is that do you see that as as one of your one of your roles making it making it easier for everyone else to 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 come to terms with exactly what kind of mental health conditions they're experiencing
2: yep yep so part of it is yet yeah, um relaying that on behalf of people who can't part of it is saying um it's okay you can still yeah. be a great you know, productive, high talented employee. Um, And part of it is actually the environment that I'm in. So if I look at the group of secretaries um, who, you know, are leading the public service, they are, well, yeah, they are all extremely authentic, um, compassionate, empathetic individuals. And I think part of that comes with the public service, the Q being in the second word of that, um, that it does attract people who, I think um, Simon Sinek said in relation to the military, but I would apply it to the the public service. You know, in the military, we give medals to people who sacrifice themselves on this, for the sake of others, and in corporates, we give bonuses to people who sacrifice others for the sake of themselves. <laughs> so I feel that in that environment, where I have people like Jim Betts and Rod Staples and Mark Scott and Tim Redden, who and M Hogan now has joined the crew, which is fantastic. So between them, I think I knew that they would get it mm-hmm. and that they would support me and all
0: so. That. That that um, that experience of yours, I guess you you were saying it has coloured sort of your interest mm-hmm. in social issues. Yeah. Um, and I notice also that the uh, the premier, uh, whether it's a coincidence or not, since you've started, um, mm-hmm. a lot of the premier's priorities are associated with uh, social issues, where she's um, previously been known, I guess, for a lot of uh, more traditional heavy infrastructure like yep. transport and 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 the like i'd Um, love
2: to say that was down to me but i don't think it was (laughs) (laughs) but i'm happy to support her in it
0: can you talk us through first of all what some of those priorities are that are are a clear departure from what was there in the previous term
2: yeah sure i mean for me recidivism is one of the the most acute priorities and it is one that she talks about quite a lot um so there's a few elements to that for me. How do we um, try and, you know, do that early intervention so that uh, we're not locking people up in the first place? And then once they do find themselves in an unfortunate enough position to be incarcerated, how do we stop the revolving door that occurs where they're going in and out of the system?
0: Can you talk us through that in the in an infrastructure context? What, what do we think is the... Because these days, I guess, to, to be honest, infrastructure has become a, a sort of catch-all for a whole lot of government yeah uh in just about anything the government invests in what does it what does it mean for for that recidivism priority of the premiums.
2: Yeah, that's and you make a good point because infrastructure is nothing if it's not service enabling infrastructure. So I use the word infrastructure flip flop between services that we're providing that you know need a piece of built form to do it well and the actual built form and whether it's functioning correctly. So it's kind of good that you're you know mixing the two because that's absolutely the right answer. For
1: what's worth, I completely agree. Yeah, there's, there's they're indivisible. There's no yes. point in having a rail line if you don't have. Trains Zone. running on it. There's yeah. no point in having a hospital if it hasn't got, got medical staff. Yeah. yeah. Apart from the one in Yes Minister, which was the best-run hospital in the UK who so didn't have any patients. Which <laughs> is ideal, right? right.
2: <laughs> if we have better community health facilities and enable people to manage their own health conditions and be healthier, then maybe one day we'll get to that point.
1: So I think it, answer really is question, oh, but it for, would be yeah. good to actually talk about that. And that I think it, the last couple of years there have been much more discussion about Early intervention in keeping yeah. people out of infrastructure. Yep. You know, from a like a maybe a, a hospital or a prison yep. or whatever or it may prison. be. So avoiding the use yes. of the infrastructure as being an infrastructure question.
2: Yes, I, um, absolutely. And you know, if we think about a school where every kid is known, valued, and cared for. They are less likely to um, end up on a trajectory of kind of self-loathing and isolation, and you know, not feeling part of broader community that will then lead them to you know making choices that end them up in end up in the worst place. Mm-hmm. Um, and juvenile justice is something that particularly sends shivers up my spine. So, um, but in terms of uh, in the role that infrastructure plays in you know kind of avoiding these situations, even things as simple as specialized drug courts or specialised Koori courts, which is for Aboriginal youths where the incarceration rate for Aboriginal youths is 24 times what it is non-Aboriginal youths. Mm. So the whole point of those sort of settings is diversion from the prison system. So drug courts send people to treatment to rehab to things that will engage them with the community instead of prison because um, once people are in prison it's very particularly if they're there for short sentences which people are these days because a lot of the stuff is sort of um, on a more minor offences personal sort of crime Mm. like individualized drug use Um, so they're in there for so short it's very hard to give them the services they need once they're in if they're there for a short sentence so avoiding getting there in the first place is first prize Do we do enough
1: to support people when they Graduate from prison. I don't know what the correct term is, but when people leave prison, there are enough services that
2: it's interesting. I think people are finally joining the dots, and the reason I say that is the Special Commissioner Inquiry on ICE is going to be talking about this quite a bit. Of um, it's not just about getting people healthier and getting them off drugs. It's actually joining up our whole service system. So when people exit prison, for me, starting point number one, housing. Because Mm. if you don't have safe and secure housing, what is the foundation that you have for any sort of a productive life? Um, But there's housing, there's access to mental health services because obviously there's the high incidence of mental illness and incarceration. Um, There's reconnection with family and services that don't just you know, treat mum you know, mum in a uh, domestic violence crisis centre, dad in prison and a kid in out-of-home care, like wrap around the family and Mm. try and solve things so that they can stay together as a unit. That type of thing, I think we're starting to join that up more. Um, Part of that is what we call the no wrong door approach, which is when someone with complex and vulnerable needs touches the system, so presents at emergency department with influenza, We treat their influenza, but we also look at them as a person. And if they don't have a safe place to sleep that night or they're showing signs of post-traumatic stress, how do we make it that whatever door they come to government through is the right door?
0: So how do we, and and, and again, in an infrastructure sense, are you setting up your... contracts being set up with certain outcomes that that allow the whoever the service provider is to innovate and maybe follow those follow those cases all the way mm. to all the way into their social housing um location or is it mm. is it more does, is it does it stay in the public sector that yep. kind of whole of yep. uh, life cycle solution
2: i think part of it is getting the public sector's house in order first. Um, so, I, I mean, I chair a lot of things, because I'm DPC, it seems to be our role in life. Um, but one of the things I chair is the Social Policy Senior Officers Group, which is deputy secretaries around from around government, including Treasury, including Department of Communities and Justice and Education and Health and Liquor and Gaming and anyone else that we need around the table to have these conversations and say, right, when there's no, they're not Justice's customer, or Education's customer or Service New South Wales's customer, they're New South Wales' government's customer. So how do we provide them with services that are f- as frictionless as possible? Mm. And how do we help people reach into government when they need us because the people who need us the most are the least likely to wanna to have an interaction with us because every interaction in their life thus far has been been negative so it's having that it's um, better use of data um, so we've got our human services data set which is uh, 27 years worth of data of everyone and their families born after 1990 and I think it's it brings together over kind of 60 different service interactions so it can show us um, the fact that um, vulnerable kids in Willoughby uh, make up sixteen percent, whereas vulnerable kids of of children, vulnerable kids in Walgett, which is near Lightning Ridge, make up fifty one percent of mm. the ch- you know the that cohort of of kids. So, can you uh, use that
1: sort of sort of predictive analytics to work out where problems will occur rather than sort of. Retrospective,
2: yeah, I mean that's it. So it's, it's there's one thing to look back on someone's life and say, oh look, you first, you know, you first came into the system when your mum was pregnant with you because we already knew because you know she'd have she'd had a previous child enter into mm. out of home care. But what's far more powerful is the predictive nature because then we know who to wrap ourselves around. Mm. Um, obviously, there's some kind of sticky points about that. So if the algorithm or the actuary analysis itself comes up with a set of characteristics to identify on the day a child's born, the likelihood that it's going to end up um, needing specialised government services or that it will be um, in a vulnerable situation. So things like mum smoked while pregnant. That's not causal, although it's not good to smoke while pregnant. It's actually associative. So um, if a mum smoked while pregnant, um, is in social housing, didn't have a um, medical appointment while she was pregnant until the baby was, you know, after um, 16 weeks gestation, um, has had has um, been hospitalised for mental illness, those sorts of things, then we can say actually that's a bunch of kids who we want to... Um, we wanna look after in a very positive way in terms of empowering them to be at school and be given breakfast and be read to by the age of three and all of those sorts of things that if they miss out on, the trajectory is not looking very good for them.
0: So can we have, uh, what are some targets? What are some, some numbers, some expenditure that, that the government's planning in this regard. These are absolutely very uh, important perspectives, but how does this translate into um, the, I guess, not just the premiers priorities, but sort of what? how, do, how are you gonna measure success over this yeah. term or, the, or over the next two terms potentially? What does it look like for DPC?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think with data, yes, it's very measurable. So we can, you know, we will be able to say in 10 years time, oh, there's, you know, 5% less kids um, entering out of home care or 10% more kids finishing the HSC. Or something like that. And that's part of what the Premier's priorities are.
0: Have we have we got those kinds of uh, very sort of objective goals or is that something that still needs to be determined?
2: Yeah, on the Premier's priorities we do. Like <clears throat> there are specific goals around HSC attainment for Aboriginal right. um, and Torres Strait Islander Uh citizens. Because something so. like
0: recidivism, for example, is is virtually impossible to measure. There is no st- single definition of recidivism. What if they commit a crime again after fifty years? Does that still count as
1: recidivism? You know. So what? But you do- can measure it. I mean, you can yeah. say you can say we know that the from the data that the most likely reoffending time frame is X, and we therefore will target. There's no single comparable measure across jurisdictions. To sure, say, there's not the, we... the, the meaning of life from it, but you yeah. can presumably put in place measures that allow right. you to Right, and
2: having the data better. is going to be better than not having the yeah. data. Absolutely. Um, but part of it for me is how can we partner with the private and non-government sector because unless we all get stuck into these issues, they're not going to get
1: there. So bothered. I I was going to follow up on that because across the, the value chain of services that are delivered to all people in yeah. New South Wales, there are parts that are delivered by the public sector, yep. part that are delivered by the private sector on behalf of the public sector, or on behalf of the taxpayer, there's some that are delivered by um, charities or sort yep. of not-for-profit entities. Um, what are the incentives for each of those to capture these people and, and, and wrap around yep. them and, and do all the things that you've spoken about when they're driven by different
2: Oh, exactly, and mind. there are different mechanisms in different contexts, right? So, um You know in 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 the non-government on the not-for-profit sector sometimes it's funding right we're funding and we, we need to fund things at work and we need outcomes are so you know connected to the funding and um the kind of incentive for that continuous improvement but we were talking about social infrastructure before. We have PPP contracts with um, KPI regimes and outcomes that need to be met and availability payments that can be abated and all of those, you know, I started in the kind of banking and finance sector and it's it's amazing how powerful the kind of the finance element can actually be. Can because, you give an
0: example of how that's driving behaviour?
2: Um, yeah, lots. Um, I think...
0: As, as and specifically in contrast to what they w- maybe have done in a previous contract or what was happening in yeah. other settings.
2: I mean, you know, everyone knows I'm a very big fan of PPPs and private finance, and, and we will
1: get to the PPP discussion. We will
2: maybe. get. Oh, I don't know, we're sort of straying into it, though, aren't yeah, we? Yeah. Because well, it
1: was seamless until we just discussed how we're getting there. But <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so,
2: <laughs> so, surprise, <laughs> um, no, but. Some of it, I mean, some of it is what happens when things go wrong, right? And it's quite amazing how much having private finance in the deal will drive people to the table to say, how can we fix this? We should want to fix it anyway. Um, But it's amazing how that kind of sharpness and presence of mind
0: I'm gonna hold a you to case. it, Amy. Give us an example. We we, we want to know. We want to because I think there are lots of really great examples. Like we just need to be able to tell that story of what what kind of um, you know what a, a much more extended um, follow almost I guess following a prisoner after they after they come out of prison to make sure that they uh, have continued care with the social service system. You know, those are the kinds we of don't things- do that. We don't do yeah. that. Okay, so We don't what, do that in PPPs. What are the Would you bank then? that?
2: Would you bank an individual leaving prison, being drug-free, getting a job and, you know, well, think- re- rekindling his vows with his wife? Like that's I'd
0: certainly it's offer too it as hard. some there could be an incentive and if they can if they can track it as a sort of bonus then potentially it's something that you'd include. But um- oh,
2: that's a tricky. I mean, I would prefer that you know Service New South Wales evolved itself, which it is, and M. Hogan is a fantastic leader, and I'm excited to see where it's going, so that um, when that person presented to renew a driver's license or presented and didn't have a street address, mm-hmm. um, we actually said, right, here's a package of services for you." Right. instead of them having to try and seek out those services from thirty different providers by the time yeah, you throw yeah. all of government and not for profits mm. in the mix, so I think a lot of those service things need to be driven by government because they're you know it is it is my job to care for the citizens of New South Wales. um it could be Macquarie Bank's job if I make it, but I just I think there's there's something in um Almost, it sounds so PPP 101, but allocating the risk to the person best placed to manage it. But
1: that's the core of it. You say Macquarie Bank or or someone else could do it. I love Macquarie Bank. The key is aligning a profit incentive with a public good outcome. If you can align those two things, in a narrow or broad way, then private finance is a very, very powerful motivator to get an outcome. The question is our capacity to align those things
2: and what outcomes can we realistically expect or not, right? So if it's um, designing a hospital that's also delivered on time and on budget uh, so that it works well over the course you know, the course of the contract or the course of its life and the outcome sought is an appropriately treated patient mm-hmm. because we don't need to prescribe how often the windows are washed or the lawns are mowed because guess what? You need patients to come to the hospital so you can look after all those things, yeah. private operator. Um, and that's the outcome we're seeking absolutely um mm. and particularly where um the private sector can offer a more innovation and be more choice for patients yeah. which just to stray into the northern beaches hospital example that's one thing i love about that hospital is my parents live on the northern beaches and if they have you know a, emergency an emergency situation they have to get an ambulance and go all the way up to from north shore and if they have elective surgery they're driving straight past right straight through french's forest to get to the the san in Wuronga or um again North Shore Private Uh, now that there's a hospital on the beaches a lot of people have choice in terms of public or private healthcare and because it's co-funded by the private sector it's a hospital that would not have happened Mm -hmm. without the private um, funding Um, and it's what the community had been asking for and waiting for for 20 years and we could finally make it happen. Were there issues in commissioning? Yes Uh, you know I'm not not an expert in hospital commissioning but I know that there were some complications but I think we shouldn't forget the fact that this thing wouldn't even be there to look after the customers in the on the northern beaches area if it wasn't for private and public coming together
1: so do people do the public understand what a ppp is
2: no they're one extreme or the other i think either they see it as it's only government and it's all, you know, government's fault, which is why you can never fully transfer risk. Because if it goes wrong, hmm. they're, not, they're not, you know, Googling who is the private operator and writing a letter to them. They're angry at government and that's probably fair. Um,
0: it's a really interesting point because the example that comes to mind where we did really successfully transfer all of the, well, effectively patronage risk, was something like a Cross City Tunnel. Yeah, it's where a the riot. government actually made money. I think there was $300 million paid
1: up front for the privilege of taking it. Well, I, that I risk. would characterize that as Oh, it's already solved. The, sold? the uh, <laughs> taxpayer got a road for less than yeah. it cost to deliver.
0: Absolutely. But, yeah. And the but that is still viewed as a failure. And that was a successful transfer of risk. A failure on on behalf of government. So it, Oh yeah. Is,
2: we got a tunnel
0: we we got a the tunnel. And we yeah, have a tunnel. Absolutely. I mean, the
2: one thing about roads and stuff that you build them and you use them. Like they're kind of the 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 asset is there and it's operational. Yeah, it's relatively mm.
1: benign. Yeah. It's
2: relatively benign. So if there is a problem with, say, the solvency of the SPV or whatever, it doesn't impact service delivery. Yeah. Um, whereas I would be very concerned if the same would occur on Northern Beaches Hospital, where clinical services are provided by the
0: private sector. So is for Northern example. Beaches then the last? Hospital PPP of that. I part? cannot
2: speak on behalf of the government, um, <laughs> but you know we what we do know is that Northern Beaches Hospital uh, was procured and contracts were signed and it was in construction on time on budget and um, that's an
0: important point by y- the way. Abs- I don't know if you, oh, there's way to sh- underline it in a podcast, but on time on budget yep. is a is a you know. Northwest a very, Metro a billion dollars under. The, those are those but are it's, good it's outcomes. The so I- how do we communicate that to the public? To because because the stories yeah. for Northern Beaches have not been especially positive in uh, in most of the media coverage of it yeah. how do we communicate the the positive outcomes to the public
2: it's the public they just want to show up to any government infrastructure asset and have a good service right and i think part of the issue is they see these things as the government so and you, they can have an amazing experience in a service New South Wales centre, but if they have a bad experience in the local school or the local hospital or um, in a building c- certification or something like that, then it's a suboptimal experience overall. Mm. So you know, government has a tough gig. It's got very varied customer, uh, very varied customer base and people also i mean saying on time on budget and it was a billion under people don't know what a billion dollars it, what is that relative to the state's budget i mm. don't know i didn't know before i started working in government so i, I, hope I think you know now yeah i'm i'm pretty much there um <laughs> but i think we kind of assume we assume they all have jobs in our sector and know the nuances of contracting models i uh, mean really so yes. i am um,
1: I, I might have said it's this on, on the, this podcast before but m- i had an experience of after a motorcycle accident of going to royal north shore hospital because that was where i happened to have the accident near there yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is a ppp hospital everything up to but excluding clinical services yeah. and um other than i had two broken arms it Awful. was a it was a good experience and mm. um, you know there was um it's a a a clean new hospital everything worked i was given the you know world-class medical attention um the it would it was cleaned and the the right porters are in the right places and everything was paperless and all of that um and yet everybody's got a um health new south wales logo yeah i knew it's a ppp because i work in the (laughs) space no other customer of that hospital knew that and so my proposition from that would be are we just are we hiding the fact that this really good service i've received is actually being delivered mostly by private provision and maybe we should be kind of crowing about that a bit more rather than kind of hiding it all under a health new south wales logo
2: yeah possibly and maybe because citizens will be more on board with that if they were more involved in the first instance so um we always one of the phrases that irks me to no end is stakeholder management. Why are we managing our stakeholders? Why isn't stakeholders investment? Where mm. they're involved up front, they help co-design things and then they see themselves in it and they'll defend it to the death. And you do see that with say, um, I can think of example of a school in a, in New Zealand in a really disadvantaged area, and they got the Maori kids to help design the school. So there was a lot of Maori significance to the built form. And they haven't had a single piece of graffiti in the sort of five or six years since it's been open. So, mm. You know i think if you just sort of say oh there's a hospital you're using that now instead well sure but people don't see that themselves as a part of that and they don't have that personal investment in it mm. um but i don't know the waratah logo is pretty cool though i do like to see it <laughs> on everything
0: so what's going to happen with the ppp model over uh, uh, whether it's over this term or, mm. or the foreseeable future is it going to change are we going to see more more of them, less of them?
2: I think now that Northwest Metro has been delivered and it is fantastic, um, I I would love to revisit the conversation of what other upcoming assets could be, you know, could utilise the PPP model and where where is it the right size and shape that the market can digest it and there's enough competition because, remember, we've got a heck of a lot of infrastructure on and to do a PPP effectively you do need, you know, a healthy level of competition.
0: So, um one of the ways that uh, I don't know if we'd still call them PVPs, but they might be manifesting themselves, is uh, through unsolicited proposals. Oh, That's one of the ways that they keep seeing keep coming up in New South Wales. Yep. Um, we're receiving a whole bunch of them. If we look at uh, the DPC website that deals with USPs, um, what's going on? Why why are we suddenly receiving so many?
2: I know there's been there's been a bit of a surge. I think um, part of it. Uh, is a renewed approach to unsolicited proposals. Maybe
1: before you talk about the renewed approach, people yeah. might not really know what it What it was, what, what it, was. it is. Can yeah. you maybe just explain what i Yes, what
2: I'll, and I'll do it in a nutshell. So when government wants to procure um, a piece of infrastructure or a service or what have you, it can do it. One of two ways, either in a competitive setting, uh, where you know puts the contract out and people bid uh, in a competitive environment, or in what's actually called direct deals. So direct deals is broader than unsolicited proposals. That's where government deals exclusively with a particular private sector party uh, to see if they can negotiate negotiate an outcome. Now. ICAC direct deal guidelines say that to justify doing that, you need to satisfy a number of criteria. Uh, And one of those is sort of something that resembles uniqueness. So that that private sector counterparty is the only party who can do what they are proposing to do. Now, there is a avenue in New South Wales government called unsolicited proposals and that's where the private sector um, lob into us uh, a proposal that says hi government i have something really innovative and i think citizens would love it and i think they need it and guess what you can i'm the only one who can do it and then we receive that and we make a you know an assessment as to a number of factors so it's not just uniqueness but uniqueness does seem to be the number one hurdle because it's the hardest to cross but it's also things like value for money to the taxpayer if government does need to put in any Anything, be it um, you know, any capital cost or land or you know an opportunity cost type arrangement, um, return on investment to the proponent. So it needs to be appropriate because if the private sector is making a profit off the thing, um, it can't be sort of undue, unduly large. Um, and a lot things like alignment with government policy. So is it something that we have already decided that we want or need? So. I think I think there's been a bit of a renewed approach to unsolicited proposals, and Sally Walkham, who heads the commercial branch in DPC, has taken. She's d- had fantastic leadership in terms of um, really ramping up the capability and capacity of DPC to handle these things and do it well. When we get a proposal, we don't sort of just do a yes or no. We actually stop and say, is this something that would be beneficial for taxpayers? Is this Mm. good innovation? And when we look at value for money, are we counting all the wider economic benefits and jobs and productivity and place? Because a lot of these have place outcomes, right? Mm. Um, Or are we just looking at the valuation of a particular building? Um, And when we look at uniqueness, That's kind of something that we really want to stop and question ourselves as well. So uniqueness is often because they own something. Either they have an underlying property right and so um, entering into some sort of arrangement with government will have broader benefits in terms of, for example, catalyzing a precinct um, or being a missing link in terms of a place development that's kind of sitting there and hasn't quite been renewed because government doesn't own it but somebody else owns it. So how do we do a project with them? or well, sometimes they own a revenue stream, and that enables them to use that revenue stream to do a broader project or to do a monetization or one of those more financial structures. Uh, so I think part of gov- part of it is government's commitment to things like precincts. So it makes people who are landowners, for example, stop and go, actually, could I be part of this picture? Um, and they're great proposals to receive because precincts are something that are, you know, the the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So we need good anchor tenants and we need people who will renew their building to create more public open space Mm -hmm. and better built form and a better customer experience. So we're having a good time um, in terms of doing deals with the private sector for the benefit of taxpayers. And we always make sure that they are justifiable, auditable, they get audited Mm -hmm. um, and that we have a proper evaluation process to make sure that you know everything is above board the direct dealing is justified and the value for money is achieved
0: Uh,
1: can we talk about the innovation part of it i'm see if the principal hurdle to getting one of these up is owning something revenue stream piece of land whatever it may be um how much of real innovation are you getting in these like are they like are people presenting stuff to you that's a genuinely new idea or a new way of doing something or is it just that Mm. they own a piece of land or a revenue stream and therefore they're the only people that can do this thing
2: often yes obviously they're the only people who can do it but it does need to go further than that to be able to justify it so if i use the example of they own a piece of land or a building um why why are we getting involved like, where's the market failure there? They can just do whatever they have under their existing rights or planning consent or whatever to revitalize their own building. And but, th-
0: those are that is the majority of the the kind of proposals that have come through, right, from people that happen to own some land, and it's 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 usually properly of related. Like, at the there's moment. a bit of that, yeah. yeah.
2: But why would it be better for them to do it with us? Part of it is they use the land that they own for things like public realm because they've seen government's commitment to public open space so some of them will sacrifice you know a part of their building to create a great pedestrian walkway to go from a piece of transport through to
0: you know a park just the final thing on on proposals is there as as we've been discussing there's been a lot of property related deals um has do you see any room for something a little bit more uh out of left field where um i don't know maybe there's a technology that's uh, that's someone suddenly has access to or but the loop Hyperloop, I'm, yeah. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not advocating for Hyperloop. <laughs> Maybe not advocating for it, but if if you know some yeah. uh, Elon Musk representative comes down here and, and says uh, we want to build a Hyperloop from God knows where to somewhere else. Or a fast
2: um, rail for a billion dollars. Or a fast rail doing?
0: for a billion dollars. Yeah. Uh, is, there, is there room for a policy change in the unsolicited proposal framework or is it really just kind of... You've got an idea that or- that fits within existing policies, and we'll consider mm. it then.
2: I don't think we need a policy change. I think um, the private sector, though, has to think creatively in terms of what its uniqueness offering might be so sometimes it's actually in a consortium because it's the combination of parties who maybe each of them by themselves could do you know that's a hard test it's a hard test and the other important thing about that is that the elements that can be competed are competed so if you think about north connects for example they had a unique right in the uh, revenue stream of the two existing motorways linking them sure um but once we, sign, you know, introduce arrangement with the operator, the actual construction contract needed to be competed because that's how we could prove value for money. So, you know, government's not going to be stupid about it, but um, I think sometimes if two parties come together and come to government with an offering that between them is unique, that's something that's interesting
0: to us as well. So <clears throat> by policy change, I mean, uh, if, if le- just as an example, let's say uh, Waymo, Google's uh, autonomous vehicle, um, subsidiary decides all of a sudden that Sydney's the city. Although they've looked all over the world, Sydney's mm. the <clears throat> Sydney's the one they want. Um, would the Uncitizen Proposal framework be the the um, mm. model the, or the, the the channel for them to, w- which would require a policy change from government to enable autonomous vehicles on Sydney's road? It's just an example. I'm pulling it yeah. out of thin air. But is that is that how? The private sector would approach government with something, with an idea that they have, or is it through some other? They
2: avenue? probably would, because everyone seems to approach me via unsolicited proposals. But what I would tell them um, is, yes, we're very interested in Waymo um, and other innovative technologies, but some of it is actually the investment attraction piece, and right. that conversation is with Kim Curtin at Treasury, okay. because she's the one who says, actually, to make sure that Sydney is on the global scale on in X Y Z sector, we need key industry players and then she would have that conversation because it's not an unsolicited proposal. It's just a, it's a great thing for New South Wales to have big companies right. bring their technology, resources, talent here. Okay. Call Kim.
1: No. We, we briefly mentioned um, faster rail services in the context of Elon Musk and Hyperloops, um, but we'll get back to more of the real world. Faster rail. Um, faster rail. Is something So faster rail, not fast rail. Uh, I think it's an important distinction that yes. um, people are focusing on. Um, there's a current program of developing business cases alongside the Commonwealth Government for fast rail, sort of business case light. I don't know how yeah. one would describe them, but work with the Commonwealth Government on faster rail options and then also some studies being done yeah. just by New South Wales. Maybe you could tell us about what's I'm
2: happening. very excited about this. So, um, yes, there are some kind of, business cases done on a more granular level but what I'm doing what the premier specifically asked me and my economists to do is an overarching fast rail strategy.
1: Um, Fast or faster?
2: Well here we go everyone's so obsessed with speed I'm obsessed with time because time relates to humans and people and what they're gonna do with their lives so time is things like how, how long would a commute to work be? An hour? Two hours? What about a interaction to go see a friend for a coffee? Uh, your grandma, who you only see once every six months. That's how I'm thinking of it. If you look at the economic benefits, though, um, it does need to be pretty fast because for people to change their patterns, change um, the options in terms of where they live, what sort of jobs they can have, for businesses to want to locate, say, regional in one of our regional centers instead of Sydney, you actually do need quite high speeds, you know, over 250 kilometres an hour or something. Um, but I'm not thinking of it that way and our... our our strategy is much less focused on the technical, like the train bit. It is all about quality of life for people in our regions and connectivity in our regions that happens to involve a train. Mm. So for me, the strategy it's about people, place, and economic benefit. So people, and when we went and did a lot of community engagement in the regions, we're like, "What what does your future look like? What do you want it to look like? What would it take for your kids to want to stay in the region?" Right. Um, It's about people having greater choice in terms of where they work, partly because businesses would be locating in their region and partly because they could commute to other regions if they wanted to. Mm. And it's funny, when you talk to a lot of the regions, some of them don't care about getting to Sydney quickly. They just want to get to Mudgy. They just want better connectivity with their own region. Mm. So that was something. So therefore, it's not just about fast train to another destination. It's about place. So the renewal of the place where the rail goes, but also how is that place, say Newcastle, a gateway to the to the region and how do we make sure that the train doesn't end there but there's connectivity in terms of bus or local transport or point-to-point or Uber or whatever it's going to be um, and then obviously having uh, more um, more jobs, both created but people better match to their jobs because they have more choice, just leads to productivity uplift and general economic benefits. So it's a pretty good story which um, you'll get to read about very soon because we're nearly done.
0: Where's the story up to?
2: We've, uh, we are doing the finishing touches on the strategy now mm-hmm. um, and it'll be released early next year.
1: Does the strategy involve more than just saying here's a few potential candidates for faster yep. right so yep. you mentioned job matching yeah um ilia loves to talk about um land tax reform oh um, one one thing for oh one thing that that could be done and i'm sure your economists would support this to help people match oh. to jobs and things quicker is actually to look at things like land tax where people can move more easily and there yep. aren't barriers to moving to to where work yep. is is it, it mm. uh, without I, I know you won't be You won't want to be too specific about it. But does this strategy have those other policy things around it rather than just here's five ideas for rail lines?
2: Yeah, no, it was so much broader than that or else they wouldn't have given it to me Um, because, you know, I'm not particularly fluent in trains, uh, but my my big team of economists are the highest performing economists in the public service, if not the state. And so they are looking at things like quantification of well-being benefits or behavioural stuff. They do this. They have this fantastic tool which says why people make the decisions they do. So why do people live where they live? A lot of it is uh, social connectivity. Um, sentimentality is to place. Access to jobs. Access to where they like to have fun. Do they like to be near the beach? Do they like to be near a national park. Um, and what role does? And people are willing to sacrifice commute to work times as a trade-off for some of those things, right? So. You know, I grew up on the North Shore uh, uh, and some of my friends who then said, well, we could live on the North Shore or we could have a bigger house if we moved to the Northern Beaches have made that choice. It it takes them 20 minutes longer to get to work, but that's a trade off that they've made. So if you then um, scale that up in terms of a regional network of rail and other supporting transport infrastructure, um, the conversation gets a whole lot more interesting. So. I love the tools my economists have built. There's nothing like it, you know, in the world. And being able to play around with these things, both on an urban and a regional scale, and a statewide scale, has been absolutely fascinating. So I hope that translates into the report and that you get a really rich read, not just two fifty kilometres an hour versus two eighty-five.
0: That's a that's a, a a really good point that 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 you've just made. It's not just it, it faster rail over and over again has been. Faster or a very fast, whatever. Moderately it is. quick trains. Moderately exactly. quick trains. Have <laughs> Straightening
2: al- one curve. Yep. Have
0: always been uh, the the travel time saving has never been enough to justify it mm-hmm. in Australia. It is almost uh, completely reliant on substantial land use changes. And I think maybe that's a, a slightly different version of of Adrian's question. Um, is there is there uh, so whether it's something like a, a, a land tax, or whether it's significant um, uh, changes to mm-hmm. planning controls, yep. is that at what stage does that need to be considered to justify these current yep. faster rail proposals? And I think, because I think w- w- you've already identified some of the routes, so maybe you can talk about specific yep. specific locations. I don't know, but um, how do we consider the whole? Um, that all of the benefits of the project capture them in such a way that the government can actually afford to do it, and then yep. deliver it. What, what's what's the what's the secret there?
2: Yeah, and we do need some optionality even in the strategy, or else you know if we just present one option to government that is a you know blocks out the sun in terms of the capital cost, uh, and has some benefit, it it'd just get you know tossed aside. Absolutely, so, and um, rightly so. Yeah, and rightly so. So there is some stuff in there in terms of you know fast rail ready. Um, and, you know, how are, how are regional centres, even if there's not going to be fast rail in the next short while, how do we actually fix the regional connections? Mm-hmm. Um, what are the quick wins in terms of actual, you know, rail infrastructure? Is it straightening tracks? Is it tunnelling things? Is it... So, there are options there. And then what would 20 years look like? And what would we what would we recommend? So happen? does that
0: does that extend to planning controls? Does that extend to a consideration of how much how much development there would need to be in order to justify It
2: um, it, it definitely shows the uh, population uplift in different areas, and okay. it is actually quite interesting which areas grow. You'd almost be surprised. Some of them grow um, because how do I put this? People don't necessarily want to live in the destination, but they want to live in a small town near the destination Mm -hmm. and suddenly they could work in the destination, that sort of thing. So close proximity to big centres, that's definitely something for a second stage. These aren't final business cases or implementation plans. This is, is it a good idea?
1: I guess what Lee was talking about though, is the the evolution of the idea of a business case from being about this piece of infrastructure to about a place, but then including the policy or planning overlays that enable... A place yeah. i think we see it a bit in western sydney yeah and a bit the in g the- uh, yeah yep. it, it, there's a um i think the new south wales government did some really good stuff around the digital driver's license and yes. having trial areas so a, a yep. sort of sandbox a regulatory sandbox outside the main center test something um, i think it, not to verbal ilia but uh, is this an area where you, you could try those other things out and talk about a different set of planning controls yep. or a different set of taxation regimes in order to maximize the benefit of a very substantial mm. potential investment
0: and and sort of spell them out in the at this early stage so that cuz if we get to the if we get to um another if, if well, I can't remember what was that the east coast high speed rail study if we get spend tens of millions of dollars and then only at the last second discover that oh we'll need to sell x amount of land or whatever the complicated things are then people get people get very excited and then they discover that all these massive changes are needed that they're not willing to willing to do whereas yes, if we exactly. if that that really has to be part of the package up front doesn't it
2: yeah it does absolutely and i think um That we No, it's exactly as you said. We need to be having the conversation now because we don't want to all buy into an idea then realise we can't fund it or, yeah, the land use doesn't permit it. But I think we're getting a lot more... Part of it's joined up government, right? We're getting a lot more sophisticated at having these conversations. We now have the tools to quantify economic benefits. We can quantify the economic benefit of a park. Like, that's where we're getting to in terms of this. So we've come a long way even in the last five years. Um, And I think we've been bitten in the bum enough times where we've um, yeah, got the community all bought into something and then realised it's a bit more complicated than we thought in terms of the funding mechanism yeah. that we're having the conversations now and not misquoting projects from overseas like Crossrail or something that are very specific to those circumstances and making presumptions as to what we can or can't do in the Australian context.
0: So uh, that's another neat segue into um... Uh, another question that we wanted to wanted to ask you about um how there's a lot of discussion especially uh usually around election time but particular but still going at the moment of uh seeking funding for these projects from the federal government oh yeah, yeah. um faster rail i'd imagine is a is a candidate for that yep. um but so are lots of other projects yep. or or sometimes they 're not and is there um how do you go about deciding when you're going? When what qualifies for mm. some federal funding or a request for federal funding? How do you decide?
2: I wish I decided. I'm um I'm really excited about the conversation with the federal government yeah. around funding infrastructure. Um, part I like it that the conversation is you know what will. Be the, what's the greatest bang for your buck? What mm-hmm. will benefit people the most um, in terms of and what will benefit the nation the most? So, um, you know, uh, transport connectivity to the second airport, that is very obviously a good idea. For the for New South Wales, um, it's a good idea for the nation. It's obviously a good idea for the federal government who own the airport. So um, it's it's very cool to be having those level of conversations with the feds, instead of um, either just us coming cap in hand and saying we want some money, please, without actually having a wait. What will the results be? What will the outcomes be? How can we convince you that you know funding it now, putting the funding in, or Adrian's favorite thing, funding it quicker. Um, is a good idea. So I'm enjoying ch- that conversation.
0: Is there a formal channel here or is it kind of, uh, sometimes there are, it, you, there you'll are be counterparts at a lunch
2: with the minister? No, I have, you know, public service counterparts in right. the federal government, Department of Infrastructure who I know well and who, yes, um, you know, the politicians, political class can promise things and, and discuss things. But at the end of the day, it has to be implementable. And right. so that's when I get to be part of the conversation.
0: Because it's Good. not, it's not, it's not. They don't automatically just pick things that are the top of the infrastructure priority list. Infrastructure Australia's infrastructure priority list do that. It's kind of sometimes, sometimes a, a project just ticks the right boxes. Yep. Sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. I guess. Do we sometimes know what those boxes it's, are?
2: Just. Well. I think when the federal government makes commitments around congestion busting or yep. the second airport, or it starts to become Just to clarify, Sam to...
0: Sangster made very clear that it's not Sydney's second airport, it's oh. Western Sydney's first. He oh, was he quite. Is. important Oh my gosh. <laughs> can you adamant. erase
2: all that? You're <laughs> no, right. I'm going to
1: play it back. I've too. been picked up on
0: that before.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> what do we call it? Western, Sydney.
1: West, Western Sydney's, Sydney's first airport. airport.
2: <laughs> yeah, you're right. I remember I was yes I, when I was here. Someone said second airport, and they got in a lot of trouble, and they said really? it on the internet.
0: Oh, i was um, making it funny. <laughs> Still keeping it in. Yeah.
2: <laughs> oh well, sorry, Sam. Um, anyway, yes. So,
0: so
1: is it? There... It's a,
2: it's it's got a lot more nuance than ticking
1: boxes. So I'm going to be a bit more pointed about it. One of the things I've been quite vocal on publicly is that there's not really a unifying vision from the commonwealth government on what it wants from the infrastructure dollars expense what the objectives are and i think that it would be easier for the states Mm -hmm. for industry for the community to understand what it's bidding into the commonwealth for and what the objectives are is it urban congestion is it road safety is it some other thing um it feels like there's lots and lots of objectives of the state of the commonwealth government at the moment is there a challenge from a state perspective about knowing what you're aiming for when you ask the commonwealth government for money and how much you can ask for as a result and and is that just a a kind of black box that spits out an answer or is there a
2: one good thing to do though is what i would always do is brief my ministers um including my premier who i have the privilege of serving um so that those conversations can be had at political level and we can get some clarity.
0: Is, is that, and, and sorry, this is a kind of another version of the question I asked earlier, is that where the conversation happens from minister to minister or is it at a public sector level? What's the, what unlocks the, the, the path towards funding? The, yeah. politi- the politics or the, the bureaucrats?
2: I think senior public officials briefing consistently each of our counterparts is very helpful because then when they come together to discuss, they're both, you know, singing from the same song sheet, so to speak. So that's why I see the conversation with um, my counterpart in the federal government as so crucial in that relationship because I can check in what he's feeding up the line, mm-hmm. um, and therefore what I should be feeding up the line. And we're pretty good at being consistent about it because we both want good infrastructure for the state.
0: What What can they do to? Uh Keeping in mind that Infrastructure Australia is there and pot- uh, potentially, uh, you know, some kind of filter for these kinds of proposals or, you know, in theory, it should be that the main filter. What can the federal government do to kind of make that clearer for the states, here's a pot of money that we, is it, is it establishing a pot of money kind of like the restart fund and saying, go figure it out, make, make applications? Yeah, what, what do they need to do?
2: With certain parameters. Yeah. Yes, potentially.
1: So, Amy, we ask everybody at the end of this podcast uh, one question that defines them. Um, What's your favourite sort of infrastructure and why?
2: Uh, My favourite sort of infrastructure, I think it's schools Mm -hmm. uh, for two reasons. Firstly, they're the beating heart of a community. Um, And secondly, they're the way that every individual child can feel known, valued and cared for. And that's the best way to set them on the course of a productive and, and fruitful life
0: well that's uh you've got a, it you got a tear in your eyes Jesus you've
2: got a
1: tear did, in your eyes i didn't know how to, i didn't know what to do i was just I
2: on a d- panel with mark scott so it's all like right here well, for that's me that's
1: the most articulate response we've ever heard someone's our uh, bridges uh. yeah whatever something <laughs> i can travel on
2: <laughs> yeah see just to show your other people that you interview
0: yeah um Alrighty, well, thank you very much, Amy, for for being so generous thanks with your time. You've been come. very generous of you. We really appreciate your insight on the New South Wales government. Um, and uh, we'll hope to have you back again
1: soon. Thanks Our first for having me. guest.
2: Yeah, and thanks <laughs> for the almond latte. I'll come back.
1: So that was Amy Brown from DPC in New South Wales. I think it was a good discussion, and clearly she's passionate about the ability of government to improve the lives of its citizens. Tim Reardon, the secretary of DPC, was clearly on the money bringing Amy back to government. And hopefully we'll see continued success in managing the state's enormous infrastructure pipeline. That's it for today. Thanks as always to PwC Australia for their continued sponsorship and hosting of the series. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform to Inside Infrastructure and leave us a rating or a comment on LinkedIn. If you have any guest suggestions, then please feel free to send us those either to Ilya or myself. Uh, We certainly appreciated the messages we've been receiving so far. This episode was recorded and edited by Adam Stevens from TAG, PwC Australia's internal media agency. Research was conducted by Linda Bergerson, Michael Player and Brendan
2: Pierce.